Brad Bumstead is a longtime Capitol reporter in Harrisburg. He's also the author of two books on corruption in the Keystone State. We sat down and talked about, uh, well, capital corruption and where we go from here. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President and CEO of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I'm in downtown Harrisburg at Little Lamps uh, Coffee Shop. And joining me is uh, Brad Bumstead, uh, longtime Capital reporter. Been, uh, I won't date you too much, Brad, but uh, what four decades uh, yes. that you've been you've been writing and uh, yes. reporting. Yes, longtime Capital reporter means old when you say it, you know. But uh, no, it's been a long time. An experienced, uh, uh, an experienced Capital reporter. Uh, you have to have the longest tenure up here, uh, don't you? Uh, you know, actually, uh, um, I, I, in a way, I do, but it's hard to count. R. B. Swift from Ah, uh, yeah, uh, that's right. You know, who's now with Capital Wire has like a six-month jump on me but he also retired for six months so you know we're about even even okay yeah. uh, get get the awards and speaking of awards uh, and we'll get to where you're working now uh, congratulations on an international award uh for best new uh publication yes uh that that was a bit of a shocker not that we won an award but that it was this international award uh, I knew beforehand we'd been selected among the top ten. The publication that I write for now is called The Caucus, and I'm the Harrisburg Bureau Chief, and it's, it's a, a publication that's print only, it's not online, and it's focused on enterprise and, and investigative reporting about state government, uh, sort of a watchdog publication, if you will. So uh, Monday night, we won the International uh, News Media Association's award for the, the best print best new print publication in North America and in the world. And, um, you know, that, that was uh, quite an accomplishment. Uh, yeah, quite, uh, because uh, you, uh, you had some real uh, well-known competitive names in there. Yes. Uh, USA Today, I think yes. you mentioned. New yeah. York Times had, uh, had I don't something. Know if that they, I don't know that they had a new print publication, okay. but overall in the best of show, if you will, we finished uh, second to the New York Times, it's my understanding. Wow, that's uh, that's impressive. Right here in little old Harrisburg. Yeah. Uh, but I think it is a recognition of the longtime work uh, that you've done, Brad, uh, particularly as a investigative reporter, journalist, a uh, couple of books uh, under your belt, and I yes. want to talk about that. Uh, uh, but before we started here, we were talking about just a common connection amongst a lot of politicos and even political observers. Uh, back to York, um, whether it's uh, Governor Tom Wolf or uh, Lieutenant Governor nominee uh, uh, John Fetterman, Scott Wagner, Kristen Phillips Hill, Eugene D. Pasquale, uh, you add Brad Bumstead uh, to that name of folks that have come from York County. Uh, tell me about uh, your early years, and then we'll get to uh, the many newspapers that you've written for and, and what you're doing now. Sure. I, I grew up in the city of York, went to uh, William Penn Senior High School called York High, and, uh, you know, w w was uh, uh, in York during the summer in 1969 when the riots took place, and, and that was uh, uh, pretty, pretty scary, you know, seeing... Mm -hmm. seeing uh, um, tanks rolled down the street you know when the National Guard was called out and a lot you're of, in high school at that at I was that actually time? first year of college okay but you know and home on a, doing a summer job um, but I think that that uh, that was commonplace in a lot of small medium-sized cities across the country it wasn't this just riots in in Detroit and, and Los Angeles mm -hmm. and 
and uh, Washington, D.C., um, uh, other cities uh, had problems, too, with, you know, major race riots, fires, riots, uh, you know, it was, it was bad. So uh, were you in college uh, uh, thinking, I want to be a journalist? Uh, no. Was that not. your pursuit? Uh, what was your uh, undergraduate? Uh, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. Uh-huh. And, um, well, you are. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and still enjoy it when I do get the opportunity to go around and, and uh, uh, visit classrooms at university level, mm-hmm. law schools. I enjoy that. But, yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, it's something that um, I, I had not really planned for. And once I got out of college... Uh, I switched over and got a liberal arts degree instead of um, a Bachelor of Science, which you need to teach, and wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So my graduate school that I had when I got out of college was working heavy construction jobs and bricklayer jobs for about uh, a year, at least a year. It wasn't like a summer job. Mm-hmm. I did this every day. even worked on a garbage truck for a while. And uh, that just teaches you a lot about life and but it's a long story, but yeah. I eventually saw that. And what and, you and don't want to do for the rest of your life. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the idea of not having to work outside when it's, you know, uh, in the 20s or 18 degrees out or, you know, when it's 98 degrees out and the sun's killing you. I mean, it's working in, in, in an office is, is, is a sh- is sheer pleasure after that. So, so what was it that uh, caused you to say, I would like to be uh, pursue a career in journalism? Uh, well, it was simply, simply reading the, the um, uh, Chambersburg Public Opinion. I was living there at the time where I was working construction and reading um, the stories that they were carrying about a teacher strike that, that, that was going on in town. And I was just reading it pretty carefully and, and uh, thought, well, I can do that. I can do that as well or better than they're doing it, I could, I could see. Um, and, and tried to talk my way into it, got a job as a part-time sports writer, and uh, gradually kept pushing my way in the door to get in news. In fact, I'd even offered the, the publisher to uh, come in and clean the floors and, and uh, clean the desks and everything if I could learn about news, because I've been doing dirtier work than that, so I didn't care. And um, uh, they didn't hire me for that, but eventually did hire me <laughs> to do some, uh, you know, for the news side. Did you uh, did you have a, a real interest in politics, uh, uh, you know, early on? Was it, hey, I want to be a political reporter or uh, just general news? I think both. I yeah. mean, I think everybody in, in you know, that era when... when uh, Nixon was still president, had some interest in politics because it was you sure, know, between the Vietnam War, Cambodia, you know, uh, student protests across the country, and then Watergate. You, you know, it was impossible not to uh, pay a lot of attention to national politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was interested in state politics, which, you know, at that time here was even more corrupt, arguably, than, than it is now. In the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, but before we get to a lot of the corruption, because <clears throat> you've written two books uh, about it, or really you've written three books, um, but uh, when it comes to the corruption, it's had to occupy two volumes. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, sub- I don't know if there's a third volume in the works already uh, that we don't know about, uh, uh, but what, uh, what brought you to Harrisburg? How did you end up in Harrisburg? Because I know you spent some time in, in Washington, D.C. as well. Right. And, and Florida, where I covered state government in Tallahassee. Uh, for Gannett newspapers, and that to me was the real eye-opening thing because you got a sense of what, you know, everybody used the words transparent, you know, but what a really open government can be. And, and sure, there were some things that got closed down there occasionally, but the papers would raise royal hell about it. And you could get documents on 
that here you would have to file a right to know all request and wait 30 days for 35 days to be for your denial yeah <laughs> for your denial uh, the record does not exist yes. in Florida say so, yeah come on over you can, you can get copies you know and and it's at that time it was very open I can only imagine it's very similar now uh -huh. I usually it doesn't digress too much from that so so I suppose that you have interaction with other reporters in other states uh, over the years I yeah. have yeah and and what's your assessment of Pennsylvania in terms of its openness and transparency compared to obviously you had first-hand experience in Florida but vis-a-vis uh, -vis other states how are we I, I think that the based on everything I've been told by people who study this were, were you know, not the worst, and it's gotten better uh -huh. with this right to know law that was passed uh, quite a few years ago. But it has a whole lot of flaws in it, and and you know, it's not where it needs to be. That's for sure. And um, you, you know, one of the biggest things I think that that you know needs to be looked at, and that is the the the, the time period um, that they can take to to deny a request. I mean, you're waiting. You first of all, uh, you know, five days. Uh, after you file, they're supposed to get notification. Then they routinely take this 30-day yeah. uh, extension, which is supposed to be for you know real legal issues. But everybody just oh, it's legal issues. And they take 30 days. That should be shortened. I mean, to give you the answer, they had 30 days prior of we're going to deny you your request. <laughs> right. I mean, I think you know anybody would be reasonable to say okay, they need two more weeks yeah. to look at this or whatever. Uh, and, and that would be fine, you know, if, if you shorten that period, cut it in half, it might be reasonable. So uh, you, you come to Harrisburg in a full-time capacity uh, reporting on the state capitol, what, late 90s? Do, do oh, I no, have no, the dates 1983. Right? Okay, so you're here 83, uh, working for Gannett News Service? Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what papers did, uh, did were we seeing Gannett in? Well, at the time, they had four newspapers in the state um, through, through the time that I worked for them into the 90s, and that was the... Uh, uh, Lansdale reporter in Montgomery County, the Chambersburg Public Opinion, the Valley News Dispatch in, in uh, New Kensington, and the North Hills News Record, which was a suburban Pittsburgh paper. And so you're in Harrisburg when uh, the Capitol correspondence uh, rooms are full, right? I mean, oh, yeah. uh, you've, got, you've got a ton of reporters. Uh, tell us the, the difference from when you started up there, 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s, because uh, I know when I came here in in the early 2000s, we still had some uh, television uh, yes. uh, folks there. It's changed dramatically, and it, I think where you're, uh, you know, laboring today at the caucus is a, uh, another example of the changes in media. Yeah. Uh, but what was it like in the 80s and 90s? I mean, did we was this place uh, covered pretty well with the media? It really was. When I started here, there were approximately or close to 50 uh, reporters here on a full-time basis wow. for newspapers and, and uh, television and radio. Um, and it, it was really thriving in that way. And there was, a, you know. Yeah, news outlets that had multiple people, I, I can recall. Uh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. The, the uh, Associated Press Bureau then had five or six people. Now they have two. Um, Philadelphia Inquirer at one point had four or five and uh, now it's not it's it's less than half of that yeah. and it's the you know the cutbacks in, in news that occur because uh, the executives in the news industry nationwide not just here were you know naive enough to think that they could put a product online 
and you know that, that would stimulate more interest, maybe get ads and all that. And people were just saying, well, why should I buy a newspaper if I can get it online? And only in the past five years have you seen a real effort to to uh, uh, have a, uh, a pay per view, if you will, on on websites, so that you have to pay so much after ten free right. uh, looks at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Well, and so do you think that it, is, it was driven at all by the marketplace? And what I mean by that is that people just are not that interested in what's going on in Harrisburg, uh, given where Harrisburg is relative to the majority of our population. I mean, you got to go an hour and a half uh, east from here to hit Philly, uh, three and a half to, to Pittsburgh, uh, uh, the, the large population. You're, you're making yeah. an argument to put the state capital in Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, it would be a lot less I, corrupt there, uh, right? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Uh, no, it's, it's a good point. There, there, there is, you know, you know, some waning interest probably, you know, especially among millennials who get news off of their phone mm-hmm. or whatever. But um, uh, I think newspapers have an obligation to... to tell people, you know, what's going on in Harrisburg and in Washington as best they can and be watchdogs over what takes place. So with this cutback that's occurred uh, at various news organizations, some of which no longer even have Harrisburg bureaus, that's been a, 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 a real problem. Uh, we're fortunate at the caucus that we're a, a bureau that, that uh, you know, does have the, this luxury of just doing the, the, the big stories, watchdog yeah. stories that we decide to dig into. And we've had enormous backing and great resources from LNP Media Group, which of course, for people who aren't familiar with it, is the newspaper in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And they have backed this to the hilt and, and you know, put their well, money where their mouth is to, to try to deal with the, the, the lack of transparency and the, 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 the lack of openness in meetings mm-hmm. in state government and local government. Well, I know that uh, those of us who are interested in good and better government are thankful for the work that you do at the caucus and that there have been those that have been willing to invest in that kind of uh, reporting because I think that that has an accountability measure that uh, without a good uh, uh, media, uh, we will lose that, uh, and I think we'll kind of see this cyclical uh, working of corruption that I, that I certainly want to get into because you've covered a lot of that corruption. Uh, and uh, are they able to, you see this as a sustainable model and something that maybe other state capitals need to uh, to replicate to make sure that we keep uh, independent watchdog eyes on our, our elected officials? Well, it's, it's evolving. Okay. And, and I think that the, what we're seeing is a direction of a lot of this in funding, you know, a, a healthy newspaper is this move to nonprofits. And uh, the Texas Tribune is an example in Austin that's, that's well-funded by nonprofits and that they raise money uh, through breakfasts they hold every month where they have, you know, the, the governor and legislative leaders in to speak to uh, lobbyists and legislators. Mm-hmm. So th- there are n- numerous ways they're going about it now, but I think some way, somehow, people are going to, um, uh, you know, have this focus on, on, on government as a watchdog. Uh, the, the thing that's concerning somewhat uh, as you look at all of this is, is I, I don't know how newspapers are going to do this unless they come up with some kind of broker that would, would, would provide the, the, the online uh, fees to see the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Post-Gazette, and Penn Live, let's say, in a package. Mm-hmm. Because, like, personally, I subscribe to the, the yep. Philadelphia uh, Inquirer, but I'm not going to buy 
others on top of that, it's as it is. It's I don't know, twelve dollars a right. month, I think. So there ought to be some way that you, if you paid fifteen, that you would get four or five papers in the state. Uh, almost like uh, if we, you know, could pick and choose our cable channels, right? right. Uh, <laughs> or yeah, it's sort of by our news channels. Amazon does yeah. with with Amazon Prime and and Netflix, you know. So you. You pay one fee, but you get the, you know, you know, you know an amalgam of stories. So, so Brad, uh, your you wrote the book uh, uh, Keystone Corruption: An Insider's View of uh, State Gone Wrong. Um, how wrong is Pennsylvania vis a vis others? I mean, we hear about corruption, uh, right? We're here talk about a president uh, uh, possibly pardoning a governor who was trying to sell a U.S. Senate seat. We have a president uh, talking about pardoning himself. <laughs> yeah, right. We won't get into the constitutionality of, of such a move. Uh, but uh, uh, how is Pennsylvania relative to other states? I mean, when we hear of corruption, we think of Louisiana. Uh, we think of Illinois, uh, New Jersey. Uh, where does Pennsylvania fit into uh, that mix? You've named them, and I think we're in the we're in the top five. I don't think Pennsylvania, despite what's happened here over the past couple of years, is as corrupt as some other states. In my view, based, you know, it's hard. There are various measures that have been used to look at this, but one of those is is uh, uh, federal data through the Justice Department. Uh, but that only reveals uh, prosecutions by U.S. attorneys around the country. It wouldn't count prosecutions by DAs uh-huh. or, or the attorney general. But I believe, uh, you know, based on the data I've seen, that New York is, is probably the most corrupt state because of the nature of corruption. Mm-hmm. You know, what takes place in Albany and New York City, it's like serious crime right. that, that public officials are involved in. You know, big bribes and, you know, real estate tra- transactions that are dirty. Um, you know, I just yeah, think- tr- AG, attorney general, used to mean aspiring governor. Now, apparently, it means you're going to end up in the big house, not the, uh, it, it, it <laughs> the governor's house. And, 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 you know, the Philadelphia district attorney... Uh, um, wound up uh, himself uh, going to jail after prosecuting people for the same thing of, of uh, uh, taking uh, uh, payoffs in, in return for something, in his case from lawyers, Seth Williams, as opposed to the people he prosecuted in the Sting case. That's in the second book, uh-huh. uh, which is Keystone Corruption Continues. Can't, continues. Uh, and well, and I want to get to Are We Continuing? Uh, but uh, you wrote this book while you're working full-time as yes. a reporter. You're writing, I think, a column, uh, yes. a weekly column yes. uh, for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Yes. Uh, how did you, uh, I guess, in part, you had to carve out time to write this book. Um, and what did you discover that was uh, new to you, I guess, as you went through this? Uh, or things that were, oh, my goodness, this is worse than I thought. Or uh, t- Tell me about that whole process and what you've learned from it and how you've not become entirely cynical, Brad. Uh, in how do you this. know that I have? Yeah, I, I, true. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and I want you to give us some hope, not, uh, uh, you know, hopelessness uh, no, at I'm the not, end of I'm this. not hopeless. No. But, um, well, I would carve out about an hour to an hour and a half a night. That doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, I would, I was pretty disciplined about that and would do it. And then... Uh, write more on Saturdays and Sundays, but I was lucky because I didn't have to do years of research to compile this material. I was covering it as I went, <laughs> right. you know, uh, coming back Almost compile trial. your columns, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, because at that time, that's the period of bonus gate and computer gate, and uh, former Senator Fumo, who actually has a book out now, too, by the way. I don't uh-huh. know if you've seen it. but I, I um, have not. Yeah. Uh, I, I would carve out this time and, and 
but I was writing about what I did every day, and that mm -hmm. made it easy because mm -hmm. this, this is what what I saw. This is what happened, uh, uh, and I was able to provide insight to that because I knew these legislative leaders who were on trial, and just for your listeners, what that meant was that in, in um, a period of, of uh, a couple years, we had uh, more than two dozen state legislators and legislative staffers um, convicted of crimes for using public resources for campaigns. Uh, two were, were former speakers of the House, um, Bill DeWeese and John Purzell, who actually shared a prison cell briefly. Yeah, uh, yeah. in Camp and, Hill, yeah. They did, and, and uh, there were several other, there were a couple other legislative leaders involved in all of that, and these were Republicans and Democrats, and... and uh, well, I it, think when your book came out, you had like eight of them that were sitting in prisons. Eight all legislative across, leaders yeah, in lead, prison correct. at the time, yeah. Sitting uh, all across Pennsylvania at uh, various levels of, of security. Right. Um, and so uh, I know you, your book lists things that really goes back to 1995. I think even starts with Ernie Priate. Actually, it starts uh, yeah. with the building of the Capitol <laughs> yeah, here. Fair and enough. The, <laughs> the corruption scandal that took place when the Capitol was built. Uh -huh. and, and, and that was pretty brazen. And there were like 17 people indicted, you know, for uh, graft that took place while the Capitol was being built. And in the end, there were only a couple convictions. But one of them was the architect, Joseph Houston, and um, in my opinion, looking through the different documents about it, I went to the state archives. It seemed clear to me that he was a fall guy because mm. the political bosses, and they were far more you know, strong at that time than we've, we've seen in our lifetime, weren't ever touched in the scandal. Mm. And you mean they didn't know about it? You mean they weren't directing what took place, you know, involving you know, millions of dollars. Uh, so. Well, certainly today, I, I, you know, our state capital, I think, is frequently mentioned as being amongst the, the most opulent uh, mm -hmm. in the country. Uh, I've been to some other state capitals, and I have to say, yes, it, it certainly is. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that's part of uh, the graph that uh, um, a lot of money was uh, exchanged and a lot of money was ended up, ended up uh, being put Sp into the capital. Spared no expense. Yeah, yeah spared but. no expense. Uh, but we, we certainly saw a big wave uh, come the 2000s. And yes. I think following uh, really some earlier ones, um, I think you had Jeff Haybay who was uh, convicted of using public resources for Yeah, that was the part. landmark case, if okay. you will, in the Superior mm -hmm. Court even decided it, which held, you know, upheld the conviction in Allegheny County. And that was uh, uh, former Attorney General, then Governor Tom Corbett's playbook that he used was the Haybay case, where, you know, he said, this is a bright line and you shouldn't cross it. And that was, you know, Haybay was forcing his legislative staffers to do campaign work for mm -hmm. him. And, you know, if they wouldn't do it, there was retribution in the office. And that's a crime. You can't do that. It's, and what the Superior Court decision held was that that's theft of services. Mm -hmm. Because each of those people is getting paid by the taxpayers, but you're using their, their, their taxpayer-funded work for a political campaign. And then, of course, uh, I think it was your colleague uh, uh, Jan Murphy that uncovered the uh, uh, listing of bonuses that were given out for political activity by uh, Mike Vion. Do I have that that correct? That, that kind of it was it was uh, actually it was Mike Vion. Uh, excuse me. It was Jan uh, Murphy and Charlie Thompson. Okay. Uh huh. Uh, who, who did that? And what they came across was a letter that had been sent out 
uh, by um, uh, former Speaker Bill DeWeese uh, uh, to uh, certain legislative employees saying, you know, that, um, that there were um, uh, bonuses that had been, been given out, but you keep quiet about this. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, well, what do you mean, keep quiet? But <laughs> not everybody knows about this. Uh -huh. and, you know, that's what really triggered the look into, you know, the payments that were made. Um, I mean, this wasn't just like the Haybay case where um, uh, staffers were, were, were sent out to campaign on state time and with state resources. This was, you know, using money to pay legislative staffers to go work in Allentown or different parts of the state. And, you know, the, the, the caucus was, it was a caucus scheme to use taxpayer funds for campaigns. Now, we've, we've heard about bonus gate, and sometimes things get kind of thrown into or under that umbrella. But yes. it, it ended up leading to lots of other scandals, uh, whether it was John Purzell uh, purchasing uh, data, I believe, or using uh, software for that was state-of-the-art yeah. computer yeah. equipment. They bought every new fangled, you know, piece of computer equipment and data uh, to use for uh, uh, campaigns, thinking that would give Republicans an edge uh, in the elections. Mm -hmm. And then you had others where I think it led into Senator Vince Fumo that finding out uh, taxpayers were buying vacuum cleaners for his mansion and, and all sorts of things that uh, so he, he ended up going down for other reasons but uh, we yeah, saw yeah, he so, wasn't yeah. tied into those yeah. two scandals and in fact his prosecution took place by uh, the, the federal government the FBI uh, went after him I think it was like a five-year investigation by the time they filed that indictment against him they had everything, you know. They they had um, all the abuses that had taken place with a nonprofit that he had founded, um, using taxpayer-funded resources with the Senate staff, and even a a, a a seaport where he, you know, used yachts uh, that that uh, weren't his for various trips. So uh, it was all in some using OPM, as he referred to it, yes. other people's money. That's right. That's right. Uh, the best kind of money to use, uh, house money, I, I I suppose, in gambling terms. Well, so, uh, Brad, interestingly, a lot of these folks, uh, they went away, uh, but they've come back. Yes. Uh, they've come back, whether it's Bill DeWeese and Mike Vion and John Purzell, they, uh, they've come back to Harrisburg. In I, I suppose uh, uh, you, your covering of them uh, wasn't always favorable from their perspectives. Uh, any good stories to share about some of the interactions you've had with some of these folks you've covered over, over the years? Well, yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, th there are three who are back now, former leaders who are registered lobbyists. Uh, uh, DeWeese, uh, you mentioned, and, and Purcell and Vion are all, all registered. Um, I see DeWeese the most frequently. He, 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 he works for uh, labor unions. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, your nemesis at the formerly the Commonwealth Foundation, <laughs> but you know, Deweese. A lot of people really liked him, even if they disagreed right. with his politics, sure. and even if they think maybe he did cross the line. Um, it, it's hard not to like him as a human being right. and as an individual. He's funny and he's charismatic. So you know, I've had a good deal of contact with him since he's back, and and. Uh, some of it reminiscing, you know, some of it where he talks about prison. Uh, 
uh, some of it where he talks about the rap song that he wrote there in prison, which maybe you yeah, heard. Yeah, I, I, I almost made him do it on this podcast uh, not not long ago, but yeah. uh, we, th- this is a family-friendly yeah, yeah. uh, podcast. It, so. it gets a little raunchy. <laughs> a little and, salty, yes. And some of it was directed, <laughs> most, of, most of it was, was directed at uh, uh, former Attorney General Tom Corbett, who prosecuted Correct. him. Yeah, so so uh, you had to do a second book because we had following scandals with uh, Rob McCord, who seemed to be a rising star, yeah. and absolutely rising star Kathleen Kane. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean that was one that I think everybody was thinking, okay, this woman is going to you know become U.S. Senate. She's going to run against Pat Toomey or something like that. But talk about uh, I guess stars uh, plummet even faster than they rise. Yeah. Uh, Rob McCord was a shocker. There's no other way to put it that it, in a very short period of time it came out that, that uh, well, he resigned. And then he was, know, he was, a, for our listeners, state treasurer yeah, uh, at the time and, and was a uh, second term uh-huh. state treasurer and viewed as somebody who, would, um, um, who had run for governor and probably would again, even though he'd been unsuccessful in the primary against Governor Wolf, but... And all this came out after, uh, really, the primary, yes. uh, which would have been quite interesting had he won uh, the nomination, uh, because all this was coming out, I think, that summer, if my if my timing is right, or it may have been during the very first term of, of right. Governor his, Wolf. His, his, his uh, office phones were bugged, and, and a former uh, trusted aide wore a wire on him for a while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but... Basically, shaking uh, down uh, uh, contributors uh, was essentially what he was doing. Yeah, contractors. People who had state contracts and, and shaking them down for, 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 for money. contributions. And, yeah. you know, but the way it happened is what was shocking about it. He, here he is, and he resigns, and the, the, there was no really good reason. It wasn't like, uh, you know, I'm doing this for, for yeah. health reasons. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be hospitalized or, you know, had a tragedy in my family. You could understand that. It was just like, what are you doing? He yeah. just ran for governor. He won his second term as treasurer. And he's leaving. And within days, days it, yeah. it came out that, that uh, he, he was uh, um, not only under federal investigation, but was close to formalizing a plea agreement. And on a Friday afternoon, I think it was, his attorney, you know, put out a statement with with the uh, uh, fact that he was going to plead guilty to two accounts of, of uh, extortion. Now, has extortion. has all of that uh, uh, has all that played out? I mean, are, are all these investigations uh, done, as far as you know, um, that have been going on? Because I know that there there have been some ripple effects and fallouts of other people uh, using you know being wired, um, and then we've had some other. I guess more minor uh, things, such as uh, someone uh, giving out campaign cash, or, or you know, well, to, there, there, to was, state there reps. was a real effort there for a while by the feds where they actually got a, a, a phony bill passed. It wasn't a real bill, and you know, looked at people who had gotten campaign contributions for passing that bill, or at least to you mm-hmm. know, let it go through. And um, they never charge anybody out mm-hmm. of that. Um, and as so far as every, you know, those things have all played out. I, I, I'm largely convinced that they have, but I'm not positively convinced. Okay. Because of the, the, the slow, you know, ponderous nature of federal investigations. As I said, it took probably five years to, to charge FUMO, and that was on top of many, many, many other years that they had investigated him, mm-hmm. maybe two or three times. Once even charged and convicted one time before, and then it was overturned. 
So, Brad, given all these scandals that uh, we've lived through, we've seen legislative leaders uh, spend time in jail, a lot of change. I mean, since I came in 2002, there's been over 85 percent turnover uh, in the House and Senate. I mean, significant turnover. I think uh, over 30 of the 34 Republicans are new, uh, you know, over the last 15 years. are, I, we kind of started out here. I mean, are you cynical about things? Do you do you think that that uh, maybe we've learned these lessons, or is this just a lull before another wave of corruption comes through Harrisburg? Uh, in, in my opinion, it's a lull. Uh, however, it may be a long okay. lull. Uh, and and the, <clears throat> the reason for that is one of the theories I espouse in this in Keystone corruption is that the corruption is cyclical. And you'll have a you you know a raft of, of, of cases, and it looks like you know it, it's just not going to end. And then all of a sudden, it does. Yeah. And you'll go for a lengthy period where there's no one charged, and it seems like things are cleaned up. But what happens is, I think a couple of things. One is that people who are in office start to get arrogant about it, start to become more and more entitled. This is their money. They can you know do what they want. There are no consequences that they see taking place out there. And much of it also has to do with who the real watchdogs are, and that is the prosecutors, whether, you know, you, if you have a Republican governor and you have a Democratic U.S. attorney, uh, let's face it, there's more likelihood that that uh, prosecutor is going to be motivated to look at what's going on mm-hmm. in Harrisburg. Um, it doesn't mean that they're doing it for political purposes. The case is either there or it isn't. But sometimes motivation can come in if something is right on the edge. You could charge or you could not charge. Now, as a watchdog, and, and you know, uh, you're finding, you're looking into stories. Probably, you, I don't know if you can share some of what you're working on right now, uh, some of the exciting things, or if this is all. Matt, you got to buy it to, to read it uh, later on when we're done. Uh, the latter. Uh, the latter. I, I mean, it's one, it's a big difference with what we used to do in daily stories or when I worked at the Trib. You yeah, you have to about, file something every day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we could talk about what's coming up for this weekend because by the time you air this podcast, it would yeah. be out there anyway. But some of the things we're working on, you know, that we have on a, a, a whiteboard are things that, you know, maybe months away. Mm-hmm. So I can't mm-hmm. really talk about them. So uh, what do you think the impact is uh, uh, in Pennsylvania this year? Uh, as you, uh, You've been a longtime political observer, right? Uh, so uh, Wagner-Wolf, uh, what, what's your take on, on that race? Uh, here we are sitting in June. Uh, obviously, November can be a long time away in political terms. Yeah. Uh, what's your assessment? We don't have any great polling right now by independent pollsters. The campaigns do polls, they have some. But what we have were polls that were done before the primary that Wagner won over two opponents. And those polls showed Wolf with a uh, 16 to 17 point lead when matched up against Wagner. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really mean that much, you know, till you move into the general election. But I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, the University of Virginia's uh, crystal ball uh, that, that, that rates all these races has Pennsylvania a likely Democratic win uh, in November. And right now, that's probably a pretty fair assessment, given that Wagner is the challenger, Wolf's the incumbent, and Wagner is trying to make up ground, you know, uh, both on name recognition and, and, and popularity. But to, to, to write it off and say, you know, Wagner has no chance, 
and there are some people who do, one needs to look back at, at, at and we do have this in the next edition of the caucus, some events that have occurred. Uh, the, the most noteworthy, I think, is that uh, uh, Harris Wofford's victory in the U.S. Senate race over Dick Thornburg in 1991, where Wofford, uh, an obscure labor and industry secretary of Governor Casey's, was uh, nominated to, to fill the seat uh, vacated by uh, U.S. Senator John Hines when when Hines was killed in a plane accident. Mm -hmm. But then Wofford had to run for the seat like seven months later, six months later. He was 40 points behind uh, uh, Dick Thornburg, who had been governor and he'd been attorney general of the United States. What's, yeah. what's what, what race? There's no race. Everybody said, you know, people would say about Harris Wofford, Harris who? Uh, because nobody ever really heard of him. And and he, he, he came up with a good message that played at the time about national health care mm -hmm. and the economy. And he had two of the best political consultants in the country um, who would later work for Bill Clinton doing his work here. And that was um, uh, 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 Paul Begala and James Carville. And, you know, Thornburg had made a couple statements that, that, you know, were just seized on by, by Carville, who was a fierce, you know, uh, campaign uh, consultant. And, you know, one of those was a press secretary, a woman uh, who worked for Thornburg, said that Thornburg uh, was uh, the only salvation for this sorry-ass state. And that just got, you know, run over and over and over again about his arrogance and, you know, mm -hmm. how, can, how can his campaign think that? And, and, and lo and behold, uh, Harris Wofford won. And, his, well, his, and that's his, also where uh, Carville came up with his uh, famous statement about yes. uh, describing Pennsylvania, which was? Which was that Pennsylvania uh, is, is like um, uh, uh, you have uh, central Pennsylvania and the T is, is uh, Alabama. Uh, with uh, Harris, with Philadelphia yeah. and Pittsburgh on, on both sides, you know. <laughs> but I do remember that, that Carville, you know, would subsequently go on to, to do Clinton's campaign in 1992, and that, you know, became famous in terms yeah. of the, the war room, and uh, they even had a um, uh, documentary on it that came out at the time, and, and um, it was also pre-healthcare debate with, you know, that Hillary Clinton led that effort after Bill Clinton yep. was elected. And, but the, the, the groundswell was, you know, Wofford's, you know, real mantra that he used was, you know, everybody has a right to a doctor, just like you have a right to a lawyer. Mm -hmm. and, and that played really well, and it was the precursor to national health care. So uh, what's your assessment? Are we going to see a big blue wave come through Pennsylvania, or you think it will be a blue ripple, or what, what, what do you think? I, I think that we don't know. I think anybody that says they do know yeah, is, right? is wrong, because I think it depends what happens in Washington. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, some people have said this election will be a referendum on, on Donald Trump. Um, maybe it will, maybe it won't. If, if Russiagate, the special uh, prosecutor thing, would... would sort of uh, fade away and they don't come up with anything on him that it stopped yeah. at the campaign, um, maybe there won't be a blue wave. But do you if think we wind up with a president, if not being charged in office, uh, being told that he'll be charged the day he gets out of office and Republicans have no, no, no choice but to start impeachment proceedings, then maybe you get the blue wave. But do you think that that has an effect uh, down ballot and even down to the governorship? Yeah. I mean, it, okay, because that... Cause, turnout. Okay, turnout. Yeah. Um, but it seems that uh, Pennsylvania voters have uh, differentiated in the past, they right? Have. I mean, they, they've they've chosen 
Um, you know, they, they picked Tom Wolf, yes. yet they gave Republicans even larger majorities in the House and Senate. They've, they've done, you know, gone Democrat-Republican on statewide. I right. think in 17 you saw a split. It was pretty much uh, females won all the judicial races. It didn't matter uh, how much money they spent. It, it was more their gender, uh, right, and right, it wasn't right. their party. I so, think the best way to put that is that Scott Wagner in the governor's race uh, would be— um, um, would stand alone from President Trump to a certain degree if there's no meltdown in Washington. But if it's completely, you know, just yeah. out of control and he's got, it's clear he's going to be impeached, it, it just, you know, taints the whole ticket. And even though Wagner had nothing to do with that, people would say, ah, I'm voting Democrat. Or, you know, you, turnout would be the biggest thing. That you, Republicans you, stay home. Do you think uh, Republicans have uh, any possibility of losing majority control of the House and Senate in, in Harrisburg? In Harrisburg? Yeah. You think that that's a possibility? No. I, I think that... Even if you had a huge blue wave? I, I think that they, they re- majorities would be reduced, but I don't think they'd lose that because th- there's where I think you draw the line that, that legislative races are local yeah. politics, mm-hmm. period. And you might have horrible things in Washington, but that's not, you know... People look at their state legislators like, well, he's my guy, and he gets grants for this community. Yeah. And, you know, I knew him when he was president of the Chamber of Commerce. You have that when you have a 253-member legislature. It's it's so large that the districts are small, and you, they, these are like city councilmen yeah. or something. You know? Do you think we need to reduce the legislature? I know that's on the on the bill, uh, you know, on the docket up there. I don't know if they're going to pass it again, but uh, it did pass last uh, yeah. legislative session. I, I think know. it go from what 203 to 150. Is that uh, the House uh, wouldn't touch the Senate? You think that that would have a, 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 a impact, uh, good or bad? Well, or is I, that I, just window dressing? Of ah, oh, we're we're listening to some of I, the. It's uh, more than window dressing. Okay. I think that the House would be more efficient. You know, I think that 203 members sometimes it's just how do you get any coalitions together there? Of course, in Congress they do, you know, yeah. 400 and some. Maybe. But, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I don't think that um, uh, it's, there's any substantial savings about that. Um, I was wrong about that years, years ago. I used to columnize, as, as John Bear likes to say, and, and think that it would. And I know that the, some people at previously at the Commonwealth Foundation had done some studies on it and showed mm-hmm. that it really wouldn't. And it comes down to legislative staff. If they don't reduce the legislative staff directly proportionate to the number of uh, seats that they've eliminated, it won't go down at all because yeah. that's where the big uh, cost is. You bet. So um, it, it, would it be okay to do that? Would it be probably better than it is? Yeah. Is it the great salvation of the state? No. Do you think we need to go to part-time legislature? Or uh, what, what kinds of reforms do you think would uh, help, uh, well, improve efficiency uh, that might even weed out some corruption? Are there some ideas that you've thought about? Here's, what, here's where we ought to go with uh, uh, to change the incentives that are at work that have allowed for you to write two books so far. <laughs> well, uh, the maybe um, you don't want those corrected because otherwise the third book won't come no, out. No, I'd like to see the state cleaned up. But uh, I ask a, um, a former FBI agent who's a consultant um, and quote him in the back of Keystone Corruption is, "What is it? That's, what's a commonality among some of the states that you found are that are mo- most corrupt?" Mm. And this guy was really experienced. He'd been involved in uh, Abscam. And he'd been involved in Shrimpgate, they called it in California. I don't know if you were out no, there at the time. Um, but where legislation was influenced for shrimpers based on cash that was handed out. 
And basically what he told me was, it's the states where legislators have the most access to money that spurs the corruption. And that made a lot of sense to me. And that's what New York is the same way. The so-called professional legislatures have all this money available. You know, they have, you know, uh, uh, expense accounts. They have the leaders all have uh, separate little expense accounts. Not little in the case of the majority leaders. Special leadership accounts are huge. Um, so they, they, that's one thing that mm. if you could somehow re re more closely monitor and audit uh, the funds that they get, uh, that would be a help. And that right they now, can the dole out. Yeah. The legislative audit that's done now is, is pretty much a joke, and it just all it does is you know add up you know the total here's the total amount they got here's the total amount was spent does it add up you know it's right. not like how it was spent um but i think that that's one thing that could be done but you know i just come back to transparency yeah. I, I think if things were really transparent as in the day a, a campaign contribution is made it goes online mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know not a year later as it does with political action committees. I mean, just boom, everything is right up there, right away with each candidate and easy to um, get at um, a computer form. I think that would be an, an amazing reform in this state. And that, that's something that really needs to be done, and it can be done. We have, we have yeah, the have uh, technical capability to do it right now. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems that a lot of the websites that the government still operates, uh, you know, were created in the 1980s or something. They're, they're, they're not very user-friendly, so we could update those. But It's not in their yeah. interest, and yeah. I think that's sure. why. They could certainly change yeah. the uh, lobbyist registration and the campaign finance mm -hmm. to be extremely current and extremely easy to use so that anybody could just go in there type in a name boom you get all the contributions that person made or receipt mm -hmm. and I think that would go a, a huge way towards uh, cleaning things up a little bit people would have to you know watch what they're doing and you can't you can't obfuscate that money as yeah. easily yeah well, Brad, I, I really appreciate uh, your joining me here on Brews and Views, uh, but I more appreciate the work you've done in the Capitol uh, by being a watchdog. I think that you've probably thwarted a lot of uh, um, bad activity or bad behavior just by your presence. Uh, people knowing that you're you're watching, you've done great work in the past, and congratulations on your most recent uh, award and recognition of the hard work you've done for so many years. Thank you so much for having me on, and thanks for the ability to talk about all of this. And you know, and yeah, where can it, folks go to subscribe and, and learn more about uh, the caucus? The caucus yeah. uh, they can go to caucuspa.com and get a, 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 a two-month subscription. I believe it is for 99 cents as a trial that you can see what it's all about. You won't see the content online again, but you will see at caucuspa.com what it's all about and who we are. And um, Well, we can't end on that because I, I have to ask you, as everybody else is moving to all online, you guys uh, are saying, we're bucking this trend. We're going to not do anything online. It's all going to be hard copy. Uh, is it, can you tell what the reasoning behind that or the, the thinking behind that? Well, I, I don't, I'm not privy to it, as, as um, uh, former Senator Scott Wagner often says, it's above my pay grade. <laughs> he, he should stop saying that, too, as a political candidate. It's different, you know, but yep. I don't know. But I, I think there's, there's uh, uh, the, the scarcity, uh, uh, you know, the demand, creating demand for something can, can increase the interest, I mm -hmm. believe. I, I don't know. Well, there are you. those of us who love paper. I mean, I love having yeah. the paper in my hands as opposed to what's uh, what's online. But you guys do great work. Uh, keep doing it. Thank you uh, for what you do, Brad. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on.
You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.